I'm really excited. We are in week number three of our series entitled Reset. And in this series, we've been talking about how all of us need to come to different moments in life where we need to hit the reset button on life. We talked about the Nintendo, the original Nintendo, and how it had two buttons on the front, the power button and the reset button. And thank goodness that the cord was small because you could sit close to the console. So if you were losing, you could hit the reset button in life and you could start over again. So if you were losing in Mario, you just hit the reset button. You get all your lives, you get to start over again. And in a way, that's exactly what Christ does for us. When we come to him, the cross was a reset for our lives so we can have a whole new beginning. Now, if you haven't picked up on a little note, I'm going to let you in on a secret that I wasn't going to tell you, but I'll tell you this. We have been walking through the book of John over the last several weeks. And what you will notice is that there is a progression and that there is a process at the different people that John is highlighting that Jesus encountered and interacted with. If you'll remember out of few weeks ago, we started talking about Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a very religious man. He tried to earn the favor of God, but yet it still left him feeling empty. Last week, we talked about a woman who had lived a very sensual lifestyle. She had tried all the pleasures of this world, and yet she was still feeling empty. And now, here we get to the third week, and we're looking at a third individual that Jesus had an interaction with, and this man was trying all the gimmicks to get ahead in life, and yet he was was still empty and needed a reset. How many of you have ever had a problem that you've dealt with for a very, very long time, like a, a mother-in-law that moved in with you and wouldn't move out or something like that? Yes. I like to make fun of mother-in-laws because my mother-in-law watches from time to time, and I like her to hear the jokes about mother-in-laws because then she texts Charity, who gets on to me, and it just kind of is a fun little game that I like to play. But we have problems from time to time in life, and it seems like somebody always has a gimmick or a solution to the problem that we have. For example, how many of you remember back during the, the highlight of the infomercial day on TV, you had all these weird gimmicks to solve the problems that you have? My favorite one was hair in a can, because if I'm losing hair, I want to get my hair from a can that I can spray on every morning. I mean, that's, that's not a bad way to go in life, is it? I mean, I'm losing hair, I need a solution, hair in a can, spray paint that thing on, head for the door. You don't have to take a shower in the morning, you don't have to use hair gel, you don't have to use hairspray. Just get going. Now, that raised an interesting question. I thought, what are some of the dumbest things that you could buy from as seen on TV ads? I kid you not, I'm not trying to be crass. This is just what I saw. The potty putter. So if nature calls, it was a little putting green that you can polish up your golf game while you're taking care of your business. Now, that's a weird thing to buy. And I'm just thinking about if you go to a friend's house and you, you, know, you go into the bathroom and you say, what in the world? You are leaving that house. You are not eating what they're serving for dinner. You know what I'm saying? You're leaving after that. My, the, the stupidest thing that this doesn't seem to go away is the Chia Pet. Like, why do I need a president that grows hair inside of my house? It's ugly. It doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't get excited by it, and yet the Chia Pet has been around for 30 years. I was looking at this. You can still buy a Donald Trump Chia Pet if you want, and just put him right there on the mantle. Watch his hair grow out. It comes out green, not orange this time, which is kind of interesting, right? These are trying to solve problems, and most of them are gimmicks. Today, though, we're going to look at a man who an ad seen on TV ad was not going to help him at all. 
He had been fighting an issue for 38 years, but one day he experienced Christ's word and his presence, and Christ's word and his presence changed everything about his life. And here's the thing I want you to understand. The big idea for today is this. You can either try gimmicks in life, or you can try to listen to Christ as he tells you to get off of your mat. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter number 5. John chapter number 5. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. John 5, verse number 1, it says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate of a pool in Aramaic called Bashida, there was five roof colonnades. In these laid a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Turn to your neighbor and say, 38 years. That's a long time. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your mat and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, The man who healed me, the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working now, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. A man who had been invalid for 38 years starts walking after Jesus gives a word. Now, I remember Knox's first baby steps. How many of you, like, I mean, that is a moment that you will cherish for the rest of your life, the first steps that your kids take. I'm not sure why that's a powerful moment for us to witness. If you think about the progression of a child's life, there are a lot of things that they do for the first time, but yet there's something special about watching a child take their first steps. They're unsure and they're shaky and they move around a lot and you can't touch them and you got to watch them go through this process and you know they're going to fall but they're going to get up again and they're going to take some more steps. It's a moment that is burned into your mind and you will remember till the day you die. It's a special thing. In fact this week just thinking about this made me want to go back and find the video of Knox's first steps and I'm watching him and he's doing this you know and he's you know how they do and they, and they start walking and you remember that. What must it have been like to watch this man who had not walked for 38 years take his first steps? It would have been a powerful moment indeed. So what's going on in this passage? What is it that we are learning from this? We have a guy who is trying superstitious things available to him to only discover that Christ is who he needs time and time again. The gospel writer John paints for us an amazing 
picture. He sets this passage up for us with this landscape. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and Jesus appears to intentionally seek this man out. He goes through the northeast corner of the city through a gate called the Sheep's Gate, and then he goes down to this area that is a pool. And the scene that Jesus stumbles upon is incredibly sad, to say the least. The scripture says that every type of infirmity is at this pool, people who are blind, people who cannot walk, people who have sickness and disease. I mean, all these people have gathered around this pool, and they've gathered there for one reason. They are desperately looking to find their healing. Now, what were they waiting for? Well, according to this man, when Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well, his response was, when the water is stirred, there's no one to put me into the water. So apparently, all these people have gathered here because if the water bubbled, the first person that jumped in was going to be healed. Now, what is the stirring of the water? The truth is we do not know. And I want to address something that might be a little bit confusing for us, but I think it's important for us to understand the context of this this passage. Some of you have a Bible, and if you look in your Bible, this is why you need to bring a Bible to church. If you look, your Bible goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, understand when we say verses, man put that in there. When John was writing his gospel account, he didn't put chapter 1, verse 1. He didn't put chapter 1, verse 2. We added that for reference. So when, when, when we look at this, it's kind of interesting then that we go from verse 3 to verse 5. Was there a typo? Well, some of you would look in your Bible and say, no, 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 I see a verse number four. And when I read verse four, here's what it says. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole from whatever disease he had. So some of you have verse four and some of you don't have verse four. What's up with that? Is it a typo? Is it a problem? Well, if you don't have verse four, if you have my fancy Bible and you look down here at the bottom left, you'll see a footnote about verse four. I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. If you look at the footnote, it says this, a manuscript inserted holier in part, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down from certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped first into the stirring of the water was healed of whatever diseases he had. What's going on? Why do some Bibles have verse 4 and some don't? The Bible was not originally written in English. It was written in a language called Greek. And this was before the printing press, so scribes would have to transpose and make copies of the Bible very, very meticulously. And if you look at at all the manuscripts that we have, they did an incredibly great job. I mean, to think about handwriting the Bible, the entire thing is just a monumental undertaking, and yet these scribes did a fantastic job. You can see them over hundreds and hundreds of years that they are identical copies of one from another. And what this is showing us is that God wanted to preserve his word. However, there are a couple, very, very, very few occasions when an older manuscript might have something that the newer ones do not have in it. And that's what the case is with verse number four. Scholars can date the ages of the manuscripts primarily by the type of paper that they are written on. Think about it. If you see a a piece of paper that has a typewriter 
text on it, you know that paper is older than if it's printed off a Xerox machine. And the same thing can happen with these manuscripts. The scholars can look at them and say, well, this one's older because they used this type of paper when Jesus was alive, and this one's newer because they they had new technology that came along. And so when they look at the older manuscripts, the words talking about the angel stirring of the water are not there. So most scholars believe that what happened was that as the scribes were were making the notes, they had heard the story that there were people who believed that this water would be stirred and it was happening by an angel. And the scribes put that as a note in there to explain why the people would be laying there. Therefore, we should not read this as that God was sending a little angel stirring the water. John never intended for us to know that. He wanted us to believe that people were laying there believing that healing waters came from this. Chances are no angel ever stirred the water. Why? Because there's no biblical evidence that God ever healed anybody this way. Additionally, there's nothing in Scripture that said God would do something like this in the past. And the biggest piece of evidence why this pool was probably not used by God to heal people is that Jesus had no interest in the water. And when he talks to the man, he doesn't even refer to it. He doesn't even want to deal with it. He isn't saying, well, why haven't you jumped in faster? He just bypasses all of that. Furthermore, there's some evidence that archaeologists have dug up in this area that shows that there was a pool of water there that was most likely disrupted by an underground spring that caused it to bubble from time to time with the different aqueducts that brought the water in. And in fact, after the Roman sack of Jerusalem, the pool was a place of pagan worship, which only solidifies that there was a lot of superstition surrounding this pool. Now, why the history lesson? You guys are like, I don't like history. I could have went to school. And why are you telling me all of this stuff? The reason why is we need to get a real picture of what's going on here. And here's the picture of what's going on. Most likely, this was a place of superstition where people believed that something magical happened in these waters if they jumped in. It wasn't God working. It was their superstition that had created this. Here's why we know that, because Jesus bypassed all that. And here's what we need to understand. This man was looking in the wrong places to bring his healing for 38 years. For 38 years, he was laying next to a gimmick, hoping that gimmick would bring his healing. And I wonder how many of us can identify with that. You've had some wounds that have crippled you for a long time. There's some emotional scars of the past. Maybe you've had a run of quote-unquote bad luck that you cannot seem to break. There's maybe a financial burden that's been on you for a long time. Maybe some guilt and some shame. The reality is every single one of us are like this man in one form or fashion. We have a past, and that past is rooted in some sort of sin. Sin that we've committed or sin that has been committed against us, and it's left us spiritually, emotionally, and maybe even physically paralyzed to some degree. And just as this man was looking to a gimmick, and all of his buddies were around, and none of them seemed to get healed, or there wouldn't be this massive crowd of people there, they were waiting for something that was never never going to be able to fix the problem they had. That gimmick was never going to be able to make them whole. And there's so many superstitious things that we allow ourselves to get sucked into, and we don't even realize it. If I just hit the lottery, that that will fix all my problems. If I just have the right person come into my life, that will fix all the problems. If I just find the right person that knows somebody that knows somebody, then I can get my lucky break and I can get ahead. We look to the wrong things time and time again to bring wholeness to our heart. 
Now, I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. I don't want it to come across condescending or demeaning, but I feel like it needs to be addressed. Sometimes the same mindset even creeps into the church. There have been many wolves in sheep's clothing who have snuck into the church and have preyed on desperate people looking for gimmicks. Give your money to my ministry and God will bless you. You know, send me at $19.95 in the mail and I'll send you this, this water I prayed over in a prayer and your life's going to have true joy. If you just sing the song that I'm putting out, you know, I'll send you the CD, everything's going to be fine. There's these gimmicks that we try to suck people in with and these charlatans have made a pool and they've gathered sick people around them and sold them a gimmick in the name of Jesus. We have to be careful of the gimmicks because the gimmicks never work. It never works. Now, let's not be too hard on this man. The Bible says that he was not alone. There's a whole crowd of people waiting by these waters, trying to get in and hopefully to get fixed. Then whenever the water was stirring, however that happened, it seemed like somebody else always jumped in before this man. It didn't matter if they were healed or not. He saw them jump in and he would get, had to get bitter inside of his life. You can tell by his interaction with Jesus, he's a little bit jaded. Because he's been here for a long time. He's been waiting for something that hasn't happened. And the reality is you and I, when we look at these gimmicks and nothing seems to work, and then we get on social media and we see the dirtbag friend that we have get the promotion at work, we say, what is up with that? It starts to cause some, some angst inside of us. We see other people get extra money and the new car, and it looks like their marriage is going good. And it looks like everybody else has it together, and we're over here trying all the stuff we're supposed to try, and nothing seems to be working. We're laying on the mat. Now, what's really interesting about this passage is that Bible says that Jesus saw the man laying there and knew that he had been there a long time. I find that a very interesting passage of Scripture. Jesus knew the man had been there for 38 years. Now, 38 years is significant. You want to know why? Because Jesus wasn't even 38 years old. He's probably 31, 32, 33, somewhere in there. 38 years meant that that man was laying on a mat longer than Jesus had been alive. The night that the shepherds went to find Jesus in Bethlehem, that man was laying on a mat. When Jesus was dedicated at the temple by his parents, that man was laying on a mat. When Jesus ran away from his parents at 12 years old, that man was laying on a mat. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit descended on him, that man was laying on the mat. 38 years is a long time to be laying on the mat. And even though Jesus knew that this man had been there for a long time, Jesus knew that he himself was not a gimmick, that he himself was life. And what this man who had been there for a long time needed was himself. So what we see from this passage, it seems like there's an intentionality in Jesus's walk that he says, I'm going to go find this man because what he needs is me. Now, here's what you need to understand is that Jesus knows right where you're at. No matter how long your situation has been, if it's been short or a long time, Jesus sees where you are at. Now, remember, this book was written by John. In week one, we looked at John chapter one. You might notice a pattern forming here. And it says that Jesus formed the world. By him, all things were held together. Now, that's powerful. What Jesus is doing in this miracle is showing that he is God, that he can do things that we cannot do ourselves, primarily heal our sick and dead hearts. 
So what we have to do is we have to start putting this together. If Jesus sees me in my pain, he sees me in my hurt, he sees me in my shame, in my turmoil, my depression, and he walks up and he's offering to do something about it, if he's God, then he must be able to do something about it. So Jesus walks up to him and appears to ask a stupid question. Now, I hate stupid questions. How many? Come on, let's just be honest. There's a cliche saying that says there are no stupid questions. That's a lie. Okay? There's some stupid questions. If you ever had a five-year-old ask you for the fifth time if he can have a piece of candy, you know there's some stupid questions. Like, no, you know what? You've asked me four times if you can have a piece of candy. I said no four times. But since you asked the fifth time, sure, why not? Just go have all of it. That never happens, right? So there appears to be this stupid question. Jesus walks up to the man, says, hey, buddy, you want to be healed? Now, just stop for a second. Imagine you're laying in a cancer ward. You've just taken your 15th round of chemotherapy. You're sick. You're throwing up into a bedpan next to you. You feel like you're never going to get out of this hospital. And some guy you never walked in said, hey, how would you feel about getting better? Like, that's not exactly something that's going to make you excited. That's going to irritate you just a little bit. Imagine walking into a blind person and say, hey, would you like to see? No, I think I'm fine just the way I am. You know? I mean, think about it. We need to put ourselves, sometimes we read this stuff and we gloss over it. Put yourself in the man. You've been laying there for 38 years. You've been sitting by this pool for a long time. We don't know if it's the whole 38 years. We don't, we don't know, but it's been a long time. Hey, do you want to be healed? Well, yeah, Sherlock, I would like to be healed. He doesn't know who this guy is. Do you want to be healed? His response shows us where his heart is. It's almost defensive. He's like, dude, I've been here a long time. Every time this water thing happens, somebody else beats me in it. I have no one to help me get in there. Now, I don't think he's being nice in the moment. You don't see a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, patience in this man's response to Jesus. It's always hard to read in and tell somebody's motives. Was he trying to insult Jesus? Was he trying to recruit Jesus? Maybe that's it. Maybe he looks at Jesus. We know that Jesus was a carpenter. He was a man who worked with his hands. He probably looked like he was strong. I'm sure he was physically fit. He looked at Jesus and said, maybe this man's offering to throw me in. Maybe he's here to help me out. We don't exactly know what the man's motives are, but what's really interesting is he doesn't answer the question. Do you want to be healed? And he deflects the answer. He said, well, there's nobody here to help me. There's no one here to put me in when the water is stirred. He didn't answer the question with, yes, I'd like to be healed. Now, maybe you've resigned yourself to the fact that you're just going to have to live with the pain and the malady that you've been facing for the rest of your life. And I wonder if that's where this man is. He'd been here for 38 years. He had been hoping. Maybe he's just given up hope at this point. When Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? He says, nobody's been here to help me. And he's just given up. And I think a lot of us, sometimes we give up hope that Jesus can ever actually do in our hearts what we desperately need him to do. Now, let's go back to the question for a moment. Why would Jesus even ask the question to this man? Of course he wanted to be healed. He had been laying on a mat for 38 years. He needed a miracle. The question, though, reveals the problem. There was nothing that this man could do to bring his own healing. There was nothing that this man could do to change his situation. And so Jesus was not asking with an angle. There was no catch here. He had no hidden agenda. He comes with one purpose and says, do you want to be healed? 
There's nothing you and I are going to do to change the situation we're in. Yeah, we might want the shame to leave, but trying harder just doesn't work. You ever been there? We might want the temptation to flee us, but trying not to think about it, it's almost worse than thinking about it. We want the pain to leave, but just forgetting and forgetting doesn't necessarily work either. This man had exhausted all options. And Jesus, knowing this, looked at him and says, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly, the man's healed and he starts to walk. Notice that he got his healing from one word from Jesus. Get up and walk. Not because he did anything. There was no spooky stuff. Jesus didn't throw any dirt in the air. Nothing. Just little word. One little sentence. Get up your, and take up your mat and walk. And his life changed. Now, can I be honest for just a moment? This healing is a little bit underwhelming to me. I want you to think about it. He's laying there for 38 years, and Jesus just walks up and says, hey, get up and walk. And the guy starts walking. Now, I'm not trying to necessarily be funny, but I was thinking about this. If I was Jesus, that's not how I would have done it. If I was Jesus, here's how I would have healed a man. I would have picked him up. I would have touched the water myself. And I say, you've been waiting here. This water ain't doing you no good, but I'm God, so I'm going to touch the water. And I would have thrown him in there, and he would have swam out of there. <laughs> okay, and you think I'm being crazy. But I would, have wanted to make it, I would have wanted to make it a little bit more dramatic than, hey, get up and walk. This seems a little underwhelming to me. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. My way would have been a cool miracle. Jesus' way seems, I'm not trying to be insulted here or blasphemous. It seems, it seems just bland to me. My way would have had some pizzazz. But you know what? That's why I'm not God. Because Jesus was trying to make a point with the healing. Think of all the other miracles Jesus did. The man's blind, so Jesus spits, makes mud, touches his eyes. There's reasons why he did that. Another guy's healed, he sticks his fingers, I mean, his ears open up. He walks up, touches the dead man. The dead man gets out of a casket. He walks to Lazarus' tomb. He yells. There's a big scene. Everybody looks. Everybody knows. With this man, he just says, gets up and walk. It seems a little out of character for Jesus to make it so simple. But that's not why I'm God. I'm not God. My ideas don't live up to what really needs to happen. So how Jesus healed this man is just as important that he did. And how he healed this man points to the greater need that this man actually needed. And that raises a question. Why does God never work the way we think he should? Better yet, why do we normally seek the spectacular when Jesus just wants to give us a word? How can Jesus' word change this situation? Because he is God. And that is so simple and yet so profound. If Jesus had made a big scene, touched the water, thrown the man in there, or called lightning from the sky, whatever, he's surrounded by people who are waiting for this water to be stirred. They would have missed God. We would have tried to bottle that water up and sell it. We try to mimic it. We'd have people out there with big, you know, oars stirring up the water. Why? Because what this man really needed was not the miracle, but the miracle giver. Listen carefully. What this man needed was the same thing that all of us needed. What this man really needed was the two things that humanity lost in the garden. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. What did Adam and Eve discuss with God? We can only speculate. 
But there was a conversation there. They were talking. They were used to the sound of God walking in the garden because when they sinned, they ran and hid from him. So this was not something out of the ordinary. They recognized God's voice. They recognized his presence and sin erased all of that. Now, this man who cannot walk needs to hear the voice of God and he needs to walk with God. When you think about what you and I really need, rarely what we think we need is what we need. We think we need a miracle, but what we really need is Jesus' presence. We think we need a break in life. What we really need is the word of God in our life. We think we need a gimmick, a shortcut, but what we really need is God's spirit empowering us. Jesus' presence and his word changed this man's direction. This man had no choice but to be healed. Jesus spoke. It had to happen. This man didn't even tell Jesus he wanted to be healed. There's no record that this man had any faith to be healed. Jesus looked at him and gave him the ability to walk. Why? Because Jesus knew what he needed more than anything else was to walk with him. What you and I need is to walk with Jesus. Because when Jesus is close to our situation and close to us, everything's okay. Everything is okay. And that sounds so simple. But yet we gloss over the simple need in our life time and time again. And we get stuck laying next to pools for most of our lives. So how do I get close to Jesus? How do I get close to Jesus? You get close to Jesus by seeking after him through prayer, through the word, through worship. These things that seem so basic, so Sunday school-ish to us have incredible power in our life. The question then becomes this, how did Jesus give this man the strength to walk? I mean, we don't know what happened biologically in this man's body when Jesus said, get up and walk. All we know is that Jesus gave word, this man started to walk. And here's what I know for us. When Jesus' presence is close to us, when, when we hear God's word in our heart, I don't know how that works. I don't know how a word from Christ or, or spending time with him heals our heart. I just know it does. I don't know how Jesus takes away guilt and shame. I just know he does. I don't know how Jesus brings physical healing. I just know that he does. The reason why I think that God doesn't tell us these details is because we would try to mimic and manipulate and manufacture the miracles if we knew how it worked. Notice that Jesus then granted this man his healing with no strings attached. Why the mat? Pick up your mat and go home. It's because the healing was final. The man didn't need the mat anymore. He wasn't coming back to this place. When you get that word from Jesus, everything changes from this moment forward. You don't need to go back to the old place. He didn't need to run back to this pool anymore. He needed to walk. Listen, we need the permanency of Christ's presence and his word in our life consistently every single day. We don't get to outgrow that. We don't get to a point where we don't need it anymore. Every single day, we need Christ in our life. We need his presence. We need his word in our life sustaining us and holding us up. Because the moment we cut ourselves off from that, we're going to go back to the mat. We're going to go back to the pool. And some of us are saved. We're going to heaven. We love Jesus. We know that he's the savior of our soul. But we are laying next to a pool on a mat. And it's time to allow Christ's presence and his word to change our heart. 
we walk with him. I want to close with this as the worship team wants to come back. This man gets up, he's healed, he runs, and then there's a plot twist. The Bible says the religious leaders see this man killing, carrying a mat, and they flip out. See, it was a Sabbath day. The Jews had a law. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Don't carry anything on the Sabbath. So they start to interrogate him. Who told you to carry the mat? Man says, well, the man who healed me told me to carry the mat. Who that is, I don't know the man. He just walked up, said, get up, carry your mat, and that's what I'm doing. Now, in verse 14, the man finds, or rather, Jesus finds the man, rather, in the temple area. Now, the good news is that the man went the right direction. He went to the temple. He went to the house of the Lord. However, when Jesus gets there, again, he says something very interesting to this man. He says, hey, you're well, so stop sinning or something worse can happen to you. Now, that is really interesting for Jesus to say. Sometimes the things that Jesus doesn't say is more interesting than the things that he does say. How many times did Jesus walk up to somebody and say, follow me? Jesus didn't do that to this man. He didn't walk up to him and say, hey, glad to see you running. He didn't walk up to him and say, hey, follow me. He walked up to him and said, stop sinning or something worse can happen to you. Now that is really interesting to me. What's also interesting is this is the first time that sin is used as a verb in the Gospel of John, which means Jesus is really trying to make a point. There was something unique about this situation and this man. When Jesus walked up and called the disciples, he didn't tell them to stop sinning. He didn't tell Nicodemus to stop sinning. He didn't even tell the woman who was living with the man to stop sinning. But this guy who had been laying on a mat for 38 years, he says, hey, you need to stop sinning. Or something worse can happen to you. What's worse than laying on a mat 38 years? Laying on a mat 39 years? What is worse than this? What Jesus is really doing in this moment is warning this man that his real problem was never the mat. It was never the paralyzation. His real problem was sin and being separated from God. Not taking God at his word, being separated from him is the real problem that every single one of us has. So Jesus is basically saying, look, you're well, but don't forget you have a problem. You have sin. You have a need for forgiveness. You need a relationship with me. You got the miracle, but what you really need, brother, is a relationship. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. The scholars debate if this man ever became a follower of Jesus or not. There's actually nothing in this passage to indicate that this man became a follower of Jesus. And in fact, after Jesus talks to him, what does he do? He runs and tells the religious leaders, hey, Jesus is the one that healed me. He's over there. This man's actions mimics Judas more than anybody else. Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed. He gets defensive. He is healed. He never thanks Jesus. He finds Jesus. He never asks to follow Jesus. So we don't know. It's complete speculation. But what is abundantly clear in here is that Jesus seems to be concerned with the sin in this man's life. A lot of people come and experience the goodness of God, but they never surrender to him the things that truly need to be distilled down and give to Jesus. And then you know what happens? If you come to Jesus, you experience his goodness, you experience the power of God in your life, but you never truly surrender to him, 
guess what happens? Jesus becomes a gimmick in your life. He's the one you run to when you have problems, but you never surrender your heart to him. He's the one you look to when life comes crashing down, but you don't look to him when things are going good. You look to him to supply your needs, your healings, but you never look to him to supply the lordship of your life. We must never forget that Jesus' presence and his word is what we need in our life. Did this man ever start following Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Will you start following Jesus? I don't know that either. Jesus then says something to the crowd if this man leaves. Sorry, in verse number 19, he says this. So Jesus said to them, everybody's standing around. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father do. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows himself in his doing. And greater works than these, he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's no coincidence that Jesus starts teaching about death and life immediately after healing this man. This man is an illustration for the sermon that Jesus is trying to teach to us. Just as sin caused this man to be separate from God and lay on a mat for 38 years, and Jesus' word and presence fixed all that, so too every problem, every ailment, everything that is going wrong in life is ultimately rooted back to sin. And what we see from this man, what we see from Jesus' teaching, is if we're tired of living in death, then we're going to have to take the Word of God to heart. So many of us, we need to push pause on all the other things we're trying to do to fix in life. And we need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I just need to follow you every single day. Does this mean Jesus doesn't perform miracles today? Of course not. If that's what you take away from this message, you are missing the point. I've seen God do miracles. I believe it, and I know he can and will again. But God is a God of priorities. And he was trying to get this man to get his priorities right. And we need to get our priorities right. Sometimes God holds what we think we need to give us what we truly need. And what we need is God's word and his presence in our life.